hello, this is William. And hello, this is Jake, and it's time to tune into the world. So today, uh, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects because it has been a little while since we last podcasted. Um, And so, uh, from some sweeping reforms that Trump has made to uh, some action in Europe and all across the world, uh, we'll try to touch on a little bit of everything. So William, I know you wanted to start, and uh, go ahead. Right. So I think, firstly, I'm going to sort of move east to west in a way. Uh, the first interesting sort of news story that's been coming out, out of Europe has been in France, where allegations have been made about Marie Le Pen, who's currently leading in the polls, um, about how some of her staffers were being paid for jobs they never did. Her bodyguard has been accused as well. But this is to the EU. This is not to the French government. This is to the EU. And uh, this has hurt her in the polls. She's dipped a little bit, as well as a sort of uh, diplomatic, not scandal, but a little bit of an awkward moment. She, she visited Lebanon recently, and she was asked prior to the trip, you know, please wear the headscarf, and she refused. And she met the grand, I think it was Mufti, and she <clears throat> did not wear the headscarf and did her speech and her whole little song and dance. And people in Lebanon were very unhappy. And the, some of the, many of the Muslims in France were also furious at this. <clears throat> but she was besotted with herself and continued. So at the moment, um, Fillon has, sl- has begun to recover. Macron has struggled. His, sort of, his charge has been his brought to a halt. Uh, Benoit Hamon, the socialist candidate, remember Macron is running as an independent. Uh, Benoit Hamon has really struggled um, to gain any ground against uh, the moderates, who I think would have signed this election. And uh, Macron has uh, struggled to gain any traction after his successes. And Fillon has... You know, not really recovered. He was leading in the polls, or very cl- or pretty close, and and it was you know it's sort of predicted that he would beat Le Pen in a one-on-one runoff in the second round. Obviously, the French election has two rounds, and that sort of has been stopped. So the likelihood is, um, if Marie Le Pen can avoid another major scandal, it is likely that in the second round. It could be, well, it's definitely going to be Marie Le Pen. She definitely will get to the second round. But the question will be, will Fion, will it, will it be Fion or will it be Macron? Or will it be Hamon? You know, who knows? And the question will be, if Macron uh, defeats uh, Fion in the, fir- in the second round, in the first round, and goes to the second round, will the center-right party vote for Macron over Le Pen? And the current view is yes, but then, again, Macron is very pro-immigration, pro-Europe, and although the centroid is mostly pro-Europe, they're not, they have not been pleased with Hollande's immigration policy. Whole parts of Paris have been taken over by immigrants, and it's a disaster. Uh, they haven't assimilated well, they don't speak the language, they're struggling to find jobs. Um, the, the, again, the Islamist crisis, although it has subsided, it is still around. Uh, you know, there are still jihadist cells in Paris. And again, uh, the French economy has really not been at its best. It's you know seventy five percent tax, uh, strikes, uh, thirty five hour week, and it's just it's struggling to to move along. Uh, 
But if the situation becomes a second possibility, is uh, sort of what was the sort of the establishment view that Fillon would um, make it to the second round and face Le Pen, and it was sort of almost certain that uh, Fillon would would win that. Uh, and the third possibility is that um, perhaps uh, Benoit Hamon wins uh, unexpectedly, wins the uh, comes second in the first round, and then moves to the second round against Le Pen, and then he uh, he would lose the the French uh, right centre right would vote for Le Pen over uh, Hamon because he is he has been described and he is. Um, sort of, if you remember the late uh, Franz uh, Mitterrand of the 1980s, he is a similar type person. But remember, uh, if Marie Le Pen does end up winning, which I mean, it would be t- it would be tougher, but it's not impossible. She could win, and she's the favorite to win. If she does win, uh, it'll be hard for her to flip the legislature. It should be known that the legislature in France is controlled by the Les Republicans, the center right party. So if she does win, she will have to appoint. A uh, sort of a centre-right um, prime minister to help you know run run things. So she it w- she would be struggle to uh, call for an, a, a vote on EU membership. <clears throat> Moreover, uh, continuing our westward shift uh, in the UK today, today two by-elections occur, and it's although they might seem in- insignificant, they are quite significant. Uh, Stoke-on-Trent, uh, a Labour heartland in the north, for years. And today it is now being challenged by UKIP. Uh, UKIP only has one seat down in Essex. And they, they need to have... Uh, there's been sort of the... A theory has been brought up that UKIP will... Uh, UKIP's been growing in the north uh, every year. More, more and more people have been voting for UKIP. They gained a lot of votes in the north. Uh, the, the north was heavily for Brexit. And the people... In Stoke-on-Trent, have been urged to vote for UKIP, and if UKIP were to win the Stoke-on-Trent by-election, uh, which would be a very close, very, very, very close uh, race indeed, um, the the theory in many people's minds, in my mind, would continue, that, that perhaps other northern seats um, could flip to UKIP, and it, this is you know this is sort of the sign of the party that. This this could be a party, you know, twenty years down the line that perhaps might, uh, you know, be sort of a Lib Dem, or perhaps, in a fantasy world, could perhaps be the the true opposition. But uh, for right now, um, their concern is trying to win this Stoke on Trent by election. There's also a by election in Copeland, a Labour seat, but it's being challenged by the Conservatives. The big guns have been brought in. Theresa May visited there. Jeremy Corbyn has visited there. It is what you would call it a sort of a swing constituency, <clears throat> and uh, that is all from the Europe side of things, at least today and this week. Uh, so we will move over to the U.S., uh, where President Donald Trump has been fairly busy, uh, I would say, in terms of implementing some policies, and there's been a little bit of a shakeup. Uh, in his cabinet. Um, so the man who he originally uh, appointed as national security advisor, Michael Flynn, um, uh, stepped down over some sort of vague uh, ties to Russia. 
and details have sort of emerged that Trump officials and Trump himself were, uh, were talking to Russian officials during the election, before he was elected, um, about foreign policy, and this is obviously concerning, um, most of all because it points to maybe a little more uh, Russian meddling in the U.S. election, uh, which is always a concerning sign when one country uh, has an election manipulated by another. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Russia completely, um, you know, dictated the outcome of the U.S. election, but more and more evidence is coming out to say and to show that Russia played a part in making Donald Trump the president of the United States. And I don't think that we can really deny that too much. I know Trump will deny it to, you know, to his grave. Um, But I think that there is a, a... um, increasing view that that Russia was responsible in in part for you know America voting in Trump. Yet I don't think it's entirely fair uh, to pin everything you know on Russia. Um, and Flynn was a controversial choice uh, from the beginning. So what Trump actually did was very smart. He appointed uh, Lieutenant General H. R. McMaster. Um, who has bipartisan support, he has military support, and he's generally considered um, a master strategist and just generally liked by both sides uh, of the aisle. So he was a good appointment, and he has sort of considered two major um, changes that happened within the, the Trump cabinet uh, when Flynn was there. So uh, what happened was that the the Trump campaign and the administration uh, just banished the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, from the sort of cabinet uh, committees. And uh, McMaster's looking to change that back and also rejoining Homeland Security Council with the National Security Council. And so that separation um, was some somehow kind of linked to trying to take power away from Flynn because he was a controversial selection. So that is uh, maybe the biggest scandal um, that has taken place in the U.S. Um, since we last uh, sort of spoke. Um, Neil Gorsuch seems to be on a path to being confirmed as the justice, um, the ninth justice of the Supreme Court. Um, and he, he, you know, he hasn't really appeared too much in the news, but I think, and I predict that he will get through, um, the Senate, uh, through that nomination process. Um, I was in Washington, D.C., uh, about a week ago. And I met with uh, Congressman Tom Rooney, uh, who represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. And, uh, and he is, is an interesting man. One of his staffers um, said that, and this is, this is very correct, it's true, that 
even though the Republicans have a, ma- a majority in Congress and a, pres- and a Republican president and a Republican Senate, you really don't have the power to do anything without 60 votes in the Senate, without the ability to um, close debate on a, on a piece of legislation. So for those who are listeners that are unfamiliar, uh, there's something called cloture in the Senate, and it means that you end debate on a bill. Uh, and you need 60 votes out of the 100 to be able to end a debate on the bill. And the Republicans hold 52 seats. So they're not able to um, to have cloture. And this makes it very difficult to just pass Republican and uh, conservative legislation through Congress uh, without swaying some Democratic senators. So that is a, that's a point that I think is well taken and something that we're seeing uh, you know, the the Congress hasn't just gone passing legislation after legislation, uh, you know, just piling it on. They've been fairly well blocked by uh, the 48 Democratic senators who are, are sort of still hurting from um, a loss in, in the presidential campaign. Um, Will, do you have something to add? Yeah, I think you made a very good point. That staffer made a very good point. I'd also just like to add, and I you mentioned the cloture, um, but the Republicans could, if they really needed to get something passed, they could, with a, just a simple majority, they could vote to uh, ban or you know, get rid of the filibusters for certain pieces of legislation. Harry Reid did this um, in, when the Democrats had a Senate uh, majority. But as you saw, when the Democrats lost... The areas that he got the, removed the filibuster from, which I believe were some judicial nominees and a few other areas, the Democrats are now really upset that he did that because the Republicans can't can now stop the uh, Democrats from filibustering. But the Democrats, um, in my opinion, are in worse shape than the Republicans were after they lost in 2008. Now, it was almost common knowledge in 2008 that, that the Republicans were going, to, were going to lose. The Iraq War, the financial crisis... Um, and was, combined with the popularity of Obama, of Obama was blame, you know, was sort of an unstoppable force. And you know, I think behind closed doors, it was known McCain was going to lose. Um, he picked Sarah Palin. You know, she she clearly was, you know, a loose cannon. She didn't have any appeal with, with very many people, and the, the Republicans suffered what can be pretty much said as a, another disgrace. Um, they lost all these House seats. I mean, they lost terrible in the House. They lost all these House seats. They lost uh, hard. They, they had Democrats had a sixty, pretty much a sixty forty majority in the Senate. I mean, it was pretty much. I mean, it was the drubbing, and the Democrats. You know, but then obviously the Republicans came back in twenty ten and took the the House, and then they would eventually take the Senate back in twenty fourteen. But one thing I would say is that. The Republicans, I mean, Mitch McConnell did a tremendous job of sharing leadership in the Senate and keeping the Republican caucus t- together when they had the majority. And they were able to, you know, very cleverly, they were able to basically shut down the Obama administration, challenge him, and, and really uh, force him to realize that there, was another, that there was another side. There was a part of America who, who does not agree with him, and they were able to, in my mind, uh, you know, stop a lot of very harmful legislation. But on the flip side... Uh, when Obama had two years of both houses, 
he did not take advantage of. And that was a criticism labeled not just by the Wall Street Journal, but by the very liberal New York Times labeled that criticism. And Democrats have, you know, criticized Obama for not using the, that period, you know, uh, to build infrastructure, to, to, to do other campaign promises. I mean, the, the big thing was the, health, was the healthcare, but that took a year out of the two-year period that seriously drained uh, the staffers. It, it was a huge undertaking and a huge um, use of t- waste of, well, not, not waste of time, but a huge use of time. And so Obama got it into 2000, to mid-2000, to late 2009, thinking, oh, we're going to try and we're probably going to keep the House and Senate. <clears throat> Obama really uh, misused the time in when he had both houses. Uh, so there's this, this massive waste of time, and I just hope that, that the Republican Party does not fall into the same trap, that they are able to use the time well, they're able to enact a lot of party platform legislation, and they're also able to effectively bring to end a lot of the, the policies that really uh, made them, uh, well, really uh, made people unhappy and, and damaged sort of the American economy and you know, a lot of people. And Obamacare is one, and the more infrastructure and lower taxes and deregulation. But I think uh, one thing that the Democrats seem to be to have a problem is that they seem to have no leadership. Uh, and they seem to be in the midst of a hostile party takeover by Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders did very well in the campaign, but he did show the massive gap between the sort of establishment Democrats and the uh, sort of the more liberal, the new face. The ultra-progressive Democrat. The, right, right. And that, I think, has shown the Republican Party did have a sort of a changing of the guard but the establishment still retained a lot of control, and it was and there was a common platform. There was a common platform. Whereas the Democrats, their ideologies, I think, are pretty spread. You know, I, yes, they all tend to agree on big government, but they are going to have problems dealing with this Bernie Sanders, this this ultra left thing. Because I don't, I cannot see America electing a socialist president. I can't. I can see Britain electing a socialist prime minister. I can see France. I can see Brazil. I can see pretty much any other country in the world except for America electing a socialist president. I can see it. And, I mean, there was an article today about how perhaps Bernie Sanders could, you know, form his own party and really start to cause problems. Uh, You know, there are a lot of swing states, Ohio... And even a few votes that didn't vote for the established, you know, establishment Democrat sort of candidate or, or you know, dem- a presidential candidate, that could be very costly. Definitely. Uh, so we're going to conclude with um, the issue that was brought up again very recently about the transgen- transgender bathroom issue. Uh, so for those unfamiliar with the situation, North Carolina passed... Uh, laws which were considered sort of like discriminatory and and there was a whole um, you know problem so pretty much Obama um, Obama said let transgender students use facilities that correspond with their gender identity which is what they uh, would like to to be or what they have uh, sort of converted to be, um, and so the the 
basis for this was Title IX and the Obama's uh, sort of interpretation of Title IX. Um, and so Trump today, or, or recently, um, said that uh, we're not going to provide protection uh, for students that, that uh, would like to use you know, a, a bathroom other than their legal sex um, because they're giving it to the, to the states. Pretty much their, their, uh, their reasoning is that it's a state's right issue and that the state should have the power um, to, to do that. And so there, there's no, um, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, especially if the states are willing to, to provide sort of protection for these students or at least, you know, the, but, but it, gives, it gives the power uh, back to the states. And this is something that is, is important because it, it is determining sort of how the Constitution, if you take a sort of a strict, um, you know, Constitution uh, and, and a strict interpretation of the Constitution, the schools, uh, you know, everything about school systems is reserved uh, to the states. And that's why we have some great school systems like Massachusetts and New York and Connecticut. And that's why we have some also not that great school systems like Mississippi, but it's every state's right. And so this decision, while probably unpopular, uh, at least in the, in the very uh, liberal states, is something that is, is, I think, needed to be done because at least you have, uh, now you have, a, the, you know, the constitutionality of it can't be questioned and you have, um, you know, different states pretty much being able to decide what they'd like to do. Um, and so, again, it's controversial, um, but maybe what needed to be done. Uh, so thank you all for listening, 